we've all been uh, surprised by things in our life, sometimes for good and sometimes not so good. Uh, some surprises we really uh, appreciate, uh, are astonished by or amazed by. Uh, some we get the news that we didn't want to hear and we're surprised by that. I, as I was uh, looking at this text today, the Apostle Peter uh, encourages us to live lives that surprise or shock uh, the lost, those of the world, that our lives are so shocking and surprising that, uh, that people would look at us and, and be amazed that we live like that now. now. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate that. And I thought, what are some things in the Old Testament maybe that are shocking and surprising? And probably one of the stories that stood out most to me was the story of Balaam and Balak. Uh, you know, Balaam was a, a prophet, not an old, not an Israelite prophet. He was a prophet from another uh, community whom uh, Balak the king had asked this prophet to come put a curse on Israel. So he gets on his donkey and he begins to ride uh, toward Israel. And he's going he's gonna to put this curse on him. He gets a warning from God, don't go there. And he, there's some back and forth in the story. And he gets to Numbers 22 and he decides that this Balak, the king, is going to pay him enough. It's going to make it worth him doing that. And so he's on a narrow mountain road when his donkey just stops. And he can't get the donkey to go any further. And so he, uh, he, tr he tries to get the donkey to move. And what's happened is the donkey has seen an angel of the Lord blocking his path. Well, he can't get the donkey to move. And like donkeys will do sometimes, he becomes stubborn and the donkey just lays down. So Balaam begins to beat the donkey with a stick. Well, that's not so surprising. What's surprising is the donkey turns around and says, why are you beating me with a stick? Now, I can imagine that at that moment, Balaam was shocked. Probably just as interesting in the story is Balaam then starts arguing with the donkey. He starts talking back to the donkey. And so you have this back and forth between Balaam and, and, and his donkey uh, over why he's laid down and he won't go forward. I imagine that in that moment, Balaam was shocked. He was surprised. Uh, you know, the first time a donkey started talking to me, uh, I, I would wonder what kind of medication the doctor had put me on. That probably, though, is not the most astounding or amazing story. The word that Peter used, and we're going to get to the text in a moment, but the word that Peter used to uh, when he said that our lives will surprise, when we live a holy life, we will surprise those who are lost, we'll surprise the Gentiles who are living an unholy life, means to astound or to amaze. I thought about it even as we were singing the last song, Amazing Grace. How astounding is the grace of God? Now, I told y'all this was gonna happen to me. Monday morning, uh, John and I had been in the, the Tetons for a few days already, and we had uh, seen the beauty of God's creation. But Monday morning, uh, we drove over to the, uh, the Church of Transfiguration. It's a small Episcopal church that was built in a little community right below the Tetons, and it is situated in such a way that when you sit in the pews, you look through a big window and it doesn't need to be stained glass because the window is positioned to look directly at the Grand Teton, the, the highest of the peaks. And I sat there, uh, 
the second pew and, and begin to look at that, that mountain. And I read these words. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter by your right side, a right by your side. And as I read that text, I, I just prayed for a moment, looking at that mountain. And then the Lord led me back to Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established a stronghold and account or on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place. Now, if I was to stop right there, that's enough. When you, you, you have an opportunity to view God's majestic handiwork it is amazing. It's overwhelming. If, if, if anyone just stops and looks at the vast openness of, of God's creation, whether you sit on the seashore and you stare out across the horizon and you see the curvature of the earth, or you, you're driving across the, the high deserts as we were of, of Wyoming, or as Kirby did across northern Oklahoma, it's pretty much Kansas, All of that is, is enough. That's amazing. That's astounding. But that doesn't even compare to this. And this is what we'll get to when we move over to Peter. In Psalm 8, as David writes those words, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. He says, when I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in, you set in place, what is man what is a human being that you even remember him? The son of man that you look after him. David is looking at the beauty of God's creation and then he looks at his own life and his own sin and he says, who am I that you even care? Who am I? Lord, you made all of this. I'm astounded I'm amazed by the fact that you even care. And as I sat there on this second pew of that chapel next to the aisle, if you've ever been there, you look through that big picture window at the mountains and centered right in that picture window is a cross. And I see the glorious creation of God and realize that the God who made that went there. He went to the cross for me. That's amazing. That's astounding. That's our hope. What Christ did on the cross, even though he's the God of the universe, what he did on the cross demands something from us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the beauty and the gifts of creation, the breath and the life that you give us every day. 
But in light of your glorious majesty, Lord, we're even more amazed by the fact that you went to the cross for us. Open our eyes to your word as you teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in 1 Peter chapter four, we're gonna look at six verses. You'll see immediately as we read this text, the tie to my introduction. 1 Peter chapter four, verse one says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with that same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Well, there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. Now, this text is, or this paragraph is really a kind of a part of Peter's ongoing conversation to the church. It's, it's kind of a, a third, third therefore, uh, based upon what Christ has already done for us. And we're not going to go back and look at what I preached two weeks ago or what Nathan preached last week. Just understand that it's tied together. And it builds upon this idea that Jesus died on the cross. He bled and he died and he suffered for us. And because of his suffering, it demands something from us. I'm going to say there's only one command, one imperative that's given in this text, and the command is this, arm yourselves with the same understanding or arm yourselves with the same mindset. So the command that we have in the text, we're commanded by Peter to have the mind of Christ. Christ suffered and, and, and in his flesh, so have this mindset with the same, the same understanding that Christ had. You've, you're done with the things of this world and you're gonna focus on the things of God. That's the, the primary command. But I believe that what Peter's getting to here is he wants us to live a life that surprises the people around us. To live a life that is holy and it shocks those that are around us so that they look at our life and go, wow, he's different. He's living a different kind of lifestyle. Why would we live that different kind of lifestyle? Because of what Christ did. Because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. So we're gonna look at the text in, in three different main points. The first one is from uh, the first three verses. Here, Peter's commanded us essentially that we need to make a decision that as a believer, we're gonna follow the will of God. We're gonna arm ourselves with, with Christ's mindset and we're gonna follow the will of God. That begins with forsaking the desires of the flesh. Look at verse one and verse three. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. For there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carousing, 
carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. Peter is encouraging us to first and foremost forsake the way that we used to live our lives. And, and, and he uses here the example of the Gentiles because Peter's writing largely to believers who were Jews first, who have come to faith in Christ. And so he's comparing, these Jews were already, before they came to Christ, were already trying to live a religious life, right? And so he's comparing the, this, this lifestyle over against the, uh, the lifestyle of those who weren't even trying. Now, Peter knows and Peter writes that religion is not what saves us, right? It's Christ who saves us. And so he's gonna focus in on here the difference between the flesh and the spirit as he goes through this text. But he, he speaks of the Gentiles because the Gentiles were known for not even trying. They weren't religious. They didn't even care. They just lived out whatever, the, whatever felt good. Now, ultimately, many of you were born in a time where a lot of people were religious and sought to live good religious lifestyles even if they weren't Christians. And when people refer to uh, our country back in the, you know, whatever, 40s, 50s, 60s as being more of a Christian nation or more of a godly nation, it wasn't any more godly than it was now. It's what, what the, the difference is people tried to do good even if they were lost because there was a social expectation of, of what was appropriate. The expectation of what was appropriate by the lost in 2020 has been thrown out the window. There is no social expectation of what's appropriate anymore. Anything goes, whatever feels good, do it. That's kind of what when Peter's writing about the Gentiles, they were living in a world in, 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 the, in the Roman culture where anything goes. You, you could go to the temple and worship your gods by having all kinds of sexual debauchery going on. You could go get drunk. It was all just accepted. It, it, there was no social stigma. There was no shame. Even as I grew up uh, in, in, in high school, oftentimes there was shame attached with certain behaviors, that there's no longer shame attached to those behaviors. In fact, some of the behaviors that we used to be a, ashamed of or, or that someone might be ashamed of that they would hide now have come out and they're celebrated, right? And so the, the people that, Paul, that, that Peter's writing to is he's saying, look, don't, don't celebrate, don't rejoice, don't relish and live in the sin like the Gentiles do anymore. You need to learn to live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh, so that this living according to the, to the flesh, you ought to be done with it. You've had enough time. And I don't care how old you are. I don't care how much time you've spent living in that kind of sin. You've done it long enough. There's, you've spent plenty of time. And there's some scholars that are, that are asking the question here, saying that Jesus may be coming back soon. So uh, you need to realize your time is short. Or is Peter basically saying, look, you're going to die at some point in your time is short. It doesn't matter. It both apply. However much time you've spent living in sin is enough. When I was reading this, it, it was simply brought to my mind uh, the old Bob Newhart skit that I've showed in here, on, I think on a Sunday night one time before, 
where the lady comes into his office and she's talking about the struggle she's having and he just looks at her and he says, I'm gonna give you two words and these will help you. And so she gets out a pen and paper to write them down and he goes, well, it's just two words. You ought to be able to remember them. And she said, okay, what is it? And he said, stop it. <laughs> she looked at him and with confused face on her, you know, confused look on her face and, and, and she says, well, what do you mean? He said, stop it. How hard is it? Uh, why does so many people come into my office and when I tell them to stop it, they get confused about it. Peter's telling us, stop it. If you've had enough time to, to get drunk, to carouse, to, to live in unrestrained behavior, being driven by your flesh. Submit yourself to God. Stop the sin, repent and turn toward him. Christians, Forsake the desires of the flesh and turn toward Christ. Your salvation came at a great cost. See, that's what he builds this upon. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with this mindset. Why is it that I should stop living in that kind of lifestyle, stop living in that kind of sin? Because Christ paid for my sin at, at a great cost. The expense was high. We, we talk about how salvation is free. But salvation was not free. Salvation is free to us because someone paid an incredible price that we might walk away from sin and live a life according to the spirit of God. Listen to this. Isaiah predicted it this way in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and they did not value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace was on him and we were healed by his wounds." We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way. The Lord punished him for the iniquity of all of us. Because Christ suffered in the flesh, because he paid an incredible price so that we could be delivered from our sin, we need to stop it. Forsake the things of this world, forsake the cravings of our flesh. But Peter doesn't stop there. He gives us a solution. Verse two, he says, in order to live the remaining time in our flesh, no longer for human desires, but for the will of God. So we, we don't just try to stop sinning. We turn toward Christ and we pursue the will of God. We seek the will of God. What is God's direction? What is God's desire? What is his will? I know that and throughout my 56 years on this earth, I've, I've often failed at pursuing the will of God. But one of the things that I can look back at that I'm, I'm grateful for is as a, as a youth, I was 16, 17 years old, I became convinced by my pastor's preaching by God's word and what he was communicating from the pulpit, that the God who created all of that, the God who created me, 
knew what was best for me, whether I liked it or not, whether I liked the thought of his plan. I had I had desires. I had a future in my mind of what I wanted to accomplish, what I wanted to do, what I thought were the gifts God had given me I could, I could achieve. But I, I had a sense that God was placing me on a path. It was a calling on my life to go a particular direction. And I had to make a decision. Am I going to follow the will of God or going to pursue what I think is best? And as a young man, I set out to follow the will of God. I can't say that I've never regretted it. In the big picture, I've never regretted, but there's been times where my friends who pursued the things of this world made a whole lot more money and had a lot of cool things that I didn't get to have. And I'll be honest, there were times when I would look at that with jealousy until the Lord brought me back, okay? In the big picture, I'm still convinced that God's will is than anything that this world has to offer. His desire is better than anything that, that we could find in this world. It's intriguing that the, essentially what Peter does here is he sets up when he says, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for the God's will, he speaks of God's will there when one term, and then in verse three, he refers to the will of the Gentiles or the will of the world when he says, doing what the Gentiles choose to do or what they want to do. So he's saying there, there, there's desires, there's a will of your flesh, and then there's the will of God. You're gonna have to make a choice at some point in your life to follow the will, the want to of your flesh or the will of God. And Peter's call is for us as believers to pursue the will of God because it's worth it. And our days on this earth are short enough. We need to pursue him. The second thing that he, that he encourages to do here or that he tells us is when we pursue the will of God, there's some people that aren't gonna understand. The lost aren't gonna understand it. They're going to be surprised. And that word surprised, as I talked about earlier, it's the idea of being astonished, being amazed. It's almost a seeing something strange. I used a term, I remember when I first started preaching here, and I got a few giggles. I think there were two people in the whole church who understood it. If you've ever been out on a farm and seen the rancher has put up a new gate, there's a term that comes from that, a calf looking at a new gate. The world will look at you like a calf looking at a new gate when you live a life pursuing God's will. Now, if you don't know that look on a calf's face, you may not get it. But a, a calf that comes into a place where he used to be able to go right through, all of a sudden there's something blocking him and just has this really confused, astounded, astonished look on his face. Right, Jamie? There's a few of my folks out here that would get that. Uh, God says that when you live a life according to his will, the lost are gonna be confused by it. They're gonna be shocked, astounded, surprised. They're gonna look at you like you're a stranger, like you don't belong in this world. There's a reason for that. You are a stranger to this world and you don't belong in this world. 
if you're one of God's children. So we ought to be living like that. The, the word that he uses there is skenizo. And that that's really gets to this idea of, of a shock, astounding, surprising uh, weirdness in their head because they look at you and think you're just weird. Have you ever been told that? Have you ever been told that you were strange because you didn't do what your friends were doing? You didn't go to the parties that they were going to? That's okay. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look different and we're supposed to be strange and we're supposed to bring shock and amazement and surprise to those who don't know Jesus. The second step of that though is, Peter says they'll slander you. They'll speak evil of you. They'll talk about, uh, they'll talk about you. Oftentimes people, you know, we wonder about this. Why, why do I, why can I not just fit in? Well, because sometimes those who are lost, the spirit who dwells in them is just not gonna line up with the spirit who dwells in you, right? If, if you are walking in a relationship with a holy God, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of the living God dwells in you, that spirit is not gonna match up with someone who doesn't know the Lord. There's gonna be a sense of conflict, even if you don't say anything, you don't even have to do anything sometimes, and there's a sense of tension because there's a spiritual world and there's a spiritual disconnect there between you and someone who doesn't know the Lord. And so Peter says, uh, they'll be surprised that you don't join them in that same flood of wild living and they will slander you. Why? Why, why, why do they have to slander me just because I don't do what they wanna do? Because your walk with the Lord immediately represents or, or reminds them that they're not with the Lord. You don't have to be judgmental. All you have to do is be Jesus to somebody and there's some people who just aren't gonna like you. They're not gonna connect because of that. And what's interesting, we live in a world now where we'll be told, well, you, you need to quit judging. And I can look at somebody and say, well, I haven't judged you. I'm just being me. They feel judged because I'm not walking in that sin that they're walking in. They feel like that you're trying to, to be holier than thou is the word that'll get tossed around. Peter said, look, it's just gonna happen. If you decide to walk with Jesus and pursue the will of God, the world's not gonna like you. They're gonna be surprised by it. They're gonna slander you. But Peter says, you don't have to worry about judging them. You know why? Because God will. That's what he says there in verse five. They will be judged by God. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. There's a, a lot of questions that people ask, especially because of what Nathan preached last week about Jesus preaching uh, uh, to, the, to the dead or about the preaching that took place to the dead. And so some will question this. Who was he talking about there? Was he talking about those who were alive in the days of Noah who were spiritually dead because they refused to accept uh, the message and then they died in the flood? So 
one commentator actually said that uh, that's the people that Peter's writing to here, that, that he's, you know, those, those people were preached to when they're alive, but they're now dead because it's a flood. And Peter, you know, after the flood, Peter's writing thousands of years later. I don't think it's that complicated. I think it's pretty simple. God is prepared to call everyone to give an account. Those who are living today, those who have passed on, those who are spiritually alive, and those who are spiritually dead. In fact, I think that the text here probably better applies to a spiritual understanding of the terms living and dead than it does a physical understanding of living and dead because in the next verse, he's gonna tell us that there's an opportunity for those who were once dead to be made alive. So I believe that what, what Peter's telling us here is that every single person, those who are lost out there are, are gonna give an account because there is a, there's one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. That phrase appears many times in scripture. There's three other examples I'll give you is Acts chapter 10, verse 42. You see the phrase that, that he's ready to judge the living and the dead. Romans 14, nine, uh, in Paul's letter, he uses that exact same phrase that there's one who's ready to judge the living and the dead. And then at the very end of his life, as Paul writes 2 Timothy, one of the very last letters in the New Testament, he says the same thing, that there's one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. So it's a common phrase. I don't think it has to be tied to the context of first Peter chapter three here, because I think that what, what we're, what's being communicated is that you and I spiritually are in one of two places. We're alive spiritually or we're dead spiritually. That's the bottom line. And those who are dead spiritually are the ones who are shocked and surprised and in awe of those who are living a holy life, seeking the will of God before their eyes. They're the ones who, who don't understand. And so Peter is encouraging the church saying, look, if they don't understand you, if they don't get you, if they slander you, just, under, just realize it's because they're lost. They're dead. And you don't have to worry about judging them because there's a God who's prepared to do that. How important is that for us to get a handle on? We talk about this a lot. This is a common theme between Susan and I when we get frustrated with folks, especially in the world. I just simply ask the question, how do we expect a lost world to act? Lost. People who don't know Jesus are gonna act lost. Now, I referenced this earlier because some of you grew up in a generation where a lot of lost people acted saved. There was a desire to, to live up to a particular standard, a Judeo-Christian standard. That desire is gone in our world today. And so more and more, lost people just act lost. And if lost people act lost, there's a reason for it. It's because they are D-E-A-D. They're dead spiritually. And there's, there's a God who is prepared and ready to judge both the living and the dead, and he will do so fairly and perfectly. You and I don't have to judge. We, we you hear all of this talk often, you're not supposed to judge people. We don't have to judge people. We can just say God's word says this, he's the judge. I don't have to judge you judge your sin. I don't have to bring any kind of condemnation. God will do that. 
in his way. And he is perfectly suited to do that. And he is prepared to do it. So those who are spiritually dead will face judgment for their sin. Those who are alive will be judged according to God's standard, which is Christ, and will find life in Christ. And that's where Peter goes with verse six. The gospel must be proclaimed to those who are now dead. He says that there in verse six, for this reason, because there are those who are spiritually dead, who have no hope, they're dead, separated from God, they're living in sin, they're not pursuing the will of God, they're, they're dead, the gospel must be proclaimed. He says, for this reason, the gospel is preached to those who are now dead. Our job, part of, part of who God, what God has called us to is to proclaim the gospel to those who are dead. I think far too often we love to do our Bible studies and we're proclaiming the gospel to those who are alive. And we need to be encouraged. We need to come together. We need to hear the preaching and teaching of God's word. And it builds us up. I mean, even as I, as I started out sitting before the, the mountains and seeing the cross there, I'm encouraged and I'm built up by God's word. We need that as believers. But as much as we need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who are lost are desperate to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if they don't, hear the good news. That's what gospel means. If they don't hear the good news, they're going to be judged according to the flesh. They're already dead spiritually, and they will be judged according to their deeds. They'll be judged according to the flesh, and they will spend eternity separated from God. They need the gospel. What do I mean by that? What do I mean when I say they need the gospel? They need to hear what Peter's saying here. Jesus suffered in his flesh. He died and he rose again so that in Christ you could have life. He finishes verse six by saying, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. We preach the gospel for this purpose so that those who are dead might live according to the spirit by God's standards. What is God's standard for life in the spirit? There's only one. It's that you put your faith and hope and trust in the son of God. The one who died so that you could be forgiven and redeemed from your sin. If we will put our our hope and our faith in the son of God, We'll have spiritual life and we will live in the spirit according to God's standards. There's no other way to be made alive according to God's standards. There's only one way. And that is to to be born again by faith in the son of God. You remember Nicodemus at the very beginning of Jesus's ministry? when he comes to Jesus and he says, how can I enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, you must be born again. 
Nicodemus says, well, wait a minute. How can, I'm old. How can an old man climb back up in his mother's womb and be reborn? And Jesus said, you don't get it. You've been born of, 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 of the woman. You've got to be born of the spirit. And if you're born of the spirit, and I wonder if Peter's remembering these words as he writes this, that they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. No matter how far away you've gotten from God, no matter where you are in life today, regardless of, of the sin in your life, regardless of, of the habits that have, that have taken over your life, regardless of all of that, you have a hope of eternal life that comes through Jesus. If you'll put your faith and trust in Christ and choose to pursue him and his will, that's what it means to, to, to surrender your life to him, that he would be Lord of your life. You choose Christ and say, Lord, I'm, I wanna follow you. I want your will for my life. You will live according to the spirit. You'll be made alive. You'll be born again, whatever terms you wanna use. You, you have a future in heaven. Peter talked about this in, in the first chapter. It's imperishable, it's undefiled. It can't be taken away from you. It'll never disappear. If, if you'll just simply put your faith and trust in him instead of continuing to pursue the things of this world. So Peter's call for those who are dead in Christ is to, to accept, to surrender, to pursue life in Christ. Peter's command for us as Christians is to arm ourselves with this mindset. However long I've lived, I've, I've, I've followed this world, however long I've, I've sinned in this world, it's enough. Stop it move on and pursue God's will and the things of God. If you've been pursuing the things of this world for 60 years, stop it. If you've been pursuing the things of this world for 80 years, you've still got time, stop it. And maybe you're 16. You've got a lifetime ahead of you to pursue the will of God. I'd encourage you, 16 years has been enough time for the things of this world, pursue the will of God. You'll be grateful for it in the long run. That's God's, that's Peter's command to every one of us as believers. And then I believe the third command here, which is the second to believers, is preach the gospel to those who are now dead because that's their only hope. You have friends and family members who if they were to take their last breath today, they'd end up in hell for all of eternity because they're spiritually dead. They need the gospel. For this reason, preach the gospel to them. The living don't need the gospel. We like to hear it. It feels good to us. It encourages us, but we don't need it. If you're alive in Christ, you don't have to hear the gospel again. If you're lost, if you don't know Christ as Savior, if your friends are lost, they need to hear the good news of Jesus because outside of Christ, they have no hope. 
You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.